Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Stan von Nuremberg, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks so much, Ash. Great Stan, to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Stan, the title says it all, the urban doom loop for commercial real estate. I should say you're the Earl Cassis and Benjamin Shore Professor of Real Estate at Columbia Business School. You've done deep research analysis and modeling work on this. Stan, what is the urban doom loop? Well, Ash, simply put, it's essentially a downward spiral where when commercial property values fall in value, that reduces property tax revenue because that tax is tied to the value of that commercial real estate. When cities collect less tax revenue from property, they have to make up the shortfall somewhere else, either by raising taxes on other items, maybe income tax, maybe business tax, or by cutting spending. And that could mean less money for transportation, for sanitation, for education, for transportation, all of which means potentially more grime, more crime, people moving out, and when people move out, that further depresses real estate values, that further lower tax revenues, that further prompts budget cuts, that leads to further outmigration. And so this loop sort of spirals out of control and spirals down and the city's fiscal situation sort of gets out of hand. And this is not unlike what we experienced in uh, New York City in the 1970s, not unlike what happened more recently uh, to Detroit. Yeah, those of us uh, who are my age remember what New York City was like in the 80s and 90s. It was not a pleasant place in many ways. Uh, Stan, you and your colleagues at Columbia, I believe, have coined this phrase, urban doom loop. Tell us, where are we in this process right now? What do the data say? So we are sort of in the early phases of this doom loop, and there's a, a few reasons for this, one of which is that the full reduction in property values that we uh, have calculated in our research hasn't fully materialized yet. And partially that's because real estate is slow moving. You know, it's slow moving because right. there are long-term contracts, we can get more into that. Uh, and so because there's still a lot of tenants paying rent, even though they're not using their office space anymore, there's still cash flows coming into these properties, which means that the tax basis hasn't been adjusted yet, which means that for a large part, there's still you know substantial revenue coming in from these offices. That is projected to decline as leases are not being renewed, leases that come up for renewal are not being renewed, cash flows reduced, the, you know, then the owners of these offices are going to ask the, these properties to be reassessed for tax purposes, which is going to slowly reduce tax revenue. There's additional sluggishness built into the tax code where it's not because your cash flows this year are lower that your taxes automatically will fall. There's usually a five-year look-back period. So this is going to be a slow process. Think of it as like right. a five to 10-year process. And it's and and we're in we were sort of in the first inning of that. There's some distress that has begun to materialize, but not much yet. And so the tax revenues have not gone down much yet. Uh, the other important thing to remember is even though we were sort of three years after COVID, and a lot of this is is still the the reverberations of the COVID shock, we had an enormous amount of federal support to state and local government, right? So for example, New York City got billions and billions of dollars from the federal government to support. The, the subway, for example. Now, some of that COVID aid is expiring this year, next year. And so it's gonna take another year or so before these holes in the budget are really gonna be clearly visible. Right. 
Yeah, it's so interesting for people who are used to following, for example, the equities markets. Uh, crashes in equities markets uh, take days, sometimes hours. This is a very different, almost car crash in slow motion type of scenario. Uh, talking of which, you pointed this out to us, uh, but you're quoted in the Wall Street Journal in an article today that I don't think you've even had time to read yet. That's how quickly this is breaking. Yeah, I mean, this has been a, an important topic, and I think it's a topic that has sort of repercussions for local governments, as we were talking about, for equity investors, for, for debt investors, potentially for banks. I'm sure we'll get into that more, more deeply as we go along, but this is an unfolding story, and I expect it to be an important story for, for months, if not years to come. Yeah, you've done a lot of the real deep dive data analysis and modeling on this. What do the numbers tell you in terms of the potential drawdown uh, from peak? In other words, what are the types of erosions in values that you're seeing in terms of what your models tell you? Yeah, maybe we could put up the slide, Gabriel. It's the third slide. Um, so, our so just to take a step back, what we've done is we've collected data from office leases. Think of leases as the the cash flows that that are flowing from office assets and. Just for the readers that are not, or the listeners that are not familiar with, with Office, you know, typically Office leases tend to be long-term in nature. The average lease is about seven years in the United States. What that means is that you sign a long-term contract, even if you don't use your office anymore, because, or, or less so, because you know, of working from home, reduced demand for office, maybe you laid off some of your employees. Yeah. Uh, for all of these reasons, your, your actual physical office is reduced. Um, and maybe Gabrielle, we could show the next slide as well, um, slide number four, uh, to give us to give to give our, our our viewers a sense of just how much physical reduction in office use has has there been. There's been about 50% reduction in in office, right? So this data here that you're that you're seeing comes from Castle. Castle is a security company. Every time you go in and out of your office building, you swipe your badge to get in through the turnstile, and that turnstile data gets captured. And what we're seeing here is that. Whereas office occupancy is, is pegged to 100 at the beginning of 2020, just before the COVID shock, you know, when people were sent home to work from home, from home uh, that office occupancy fell to 10% of pre-COVID levels. And it has been gradually inching back up to about 50% right now, right? So here we are more than three years after the initial COVID shock and only half of the people are back in their office, right? On a given day, office use is only 50% of what it used to be. That has major implications because over time, as these long-term leases are coming up for renewal, a lot of tenants are saying, you know what, either we don't need this space anymore, maybe because we have another office, or we need, we're gonna renew our lease, but we're gonna take half as much space as we did before. And so all of that results in reduction in demand for office, active lease revenues are falling. Uh, Gabrielle, if we could put up slide number two, um, active lease revenues have been falling already by about 19% even though only one third of leases have actually come up for, for renewal so far, wow. right? So that's again, sort of this train wreck in slow motion, only a third of leases have come up and already cash flows have fallen 20%. And basically a lot of people are not renewing their leases. Very few new leases are being signed. You can see this in the right panel of this graph. Right. You know, whereas we were signing about 300 million square feet of new leases per year in the US, now we're signing less than hundred million. So one third of what we were doing before. And so leases are rolling off, no, very few new leases are being signed, and that means that the vacancy rate is going up, right? So there's basically more space, right. more tenants rolling off than new tenants are being signed on. So that's a lot of that space ends up being essentially left vacant. And, and vacancy rates are now at the highest level that we've seen since record keeping started in the mid 80s. 
So we haven't seen a crash like this since at least the early 1980s. Gabrielle, if we could go back to chart two for a second there and put it up on the screen. You know, one of the really striking things that happens when you look at this chart visually, you know, it's easy to talk about percentages and sometimes, uh, you know, when you hear the number, it doesn't really resonate. But when you see these two charts in front of you visually, you get such a clear idea of what those drawdowns look like relative to the past performance, and they are massive. Absolutely, right? I mean, imagine, you know, you're signing a third as many leases as you did before the pandemic. Uh, you know, and every day leases are rolling off and they're not being renewed. That means you end up with a lot of uh, empty space. And, you know, right now the, the vacancy rate has roughly doubled. Uh, you know, think of New York office vacancy in normal year would be about 10 to 12 percent vacancy. Now we're well over 24 percent, so more than twice as much vacancy. In San Francisco, this is even more staggering. Before the fun, before COVID, we had only had 5% office vacancy. Now we have 30% office vacancy. So in a short three years, we've mm -hmm. gone to an office stock that was almost fully occupied for all practical purposes to an office stock that's 30% vacant. And you can imagine what that does to rents, right? If I'm now in the, I'm a landlord, I have a, most, a half empty office building. I des I'm desperate for tenants. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make the most aggressive offers to whatever tenants visit my office property. I'm going to cut their rent. I'm going to give them what's called tenant improvements, which means I'm going to be paying for their renovations so that the space is to their liking. I'm also going to give them concessions, free rent, right? So just like you could get a month free on a 12-month apartment rental, if I sign an eight-year office lease, I could potentially get a year free, maybe a year and a half of free rent. All of that comes out of the pocket of the landlord, right? And so my net effective rent that I'm actually earning as a landlord has been falling as well over these last few years. So all of that is sort of a long way of saying cash flows are severely depressed. Cash flows are likely to, be, to remain depressed for a long time because there's so much empty space. And even if I can find a tenant, which is a big if, because you saw how a few new leases are being signed, even if I can find a new tenant, I'm gonna have to sweeten the deal and we're giving them tenant improvements by giving them uh, free rent for, for many months, and it's all gonna come out of my pocket. Uh, and so my net effective rents will be low and my leasing revenue will be low. And we've only, we've only we're at the beginning. You know, I said the first inning, first or second inning, a lot of these leases, two thirds of these leases are still up for renewal. And even the folks that did sign a new lease during the pandemic, often they signed a short-term lease. Instead of signing the traditional seven, eight, nine, 10 year lease, they signed a two or a three year lease. Why? Because they didn't know what the, what the future was gonna look like, right? So they said, you know what, let's kick the can down the road. We're not ready to close our office. There's too much uncertainty. It's, it's in the, we're in the middle of the pandemic in, in late 2020. So people signed two year leases and three year leases. Well, guess what? Those leases are now also coming up for renewal, right? And, and so there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of potential downside here for, for, for the office market yet to come. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. You know, this is something that people here in New York City are talking about a lot, but I want to talk about the processional macroeconomic impacts, the market impacts for this more broadly. Uh, I'm If you're sitting at home and you're thinking, well, I moved from Park Slope to Montclair, I work from home, my life is pretty good. Let's talk a little bit about the, the aggregate impacts on debt and equity markets here in the United States, because this could be quite severe. Right. So 
just to sort of recap, our headline number was about a 40 to 45 percent reduction in the value of office. Um, and with some variation, you know, across cities, but let's call it on average 40 to 45 percent, maybe a little worse in San Francisco, maybe a little bit better in, in some other cities. Uh, what does a 40 percent value reduction do? Well, the typical office property would be financed with a mix of debt and equity. And let's say roughly on average 60% debt, 40% equity. So if that office goes and loses 40% of value, the equity investment is completely wiped out. It's 100% loss. It's gone to zero. So the equity investor is basically left with nothing. And if if and and so the, the office that used to be worth 100 million is now worth 60. It's now worth 60 million. The equity is wiped out. The debt is fine. If the loss is bigger than 40%, let's say it's 60%. Now the debt, not only is the equity wiped out, now the debt also needs to take a substantial loss, right? And so we need to we need to think about who are these equity investors and who are these debt investors? And maybe Gabrielle, if you could put up the last slide, you know, we had a look at exactly who owns equity in offices in the US and who owns the debt of offices. And the equity picture is pretty mixed. It's a combination of all of the above. It's local investors, national investors, private equity funds, publicly listed, uh, companies called REITs. It's it's sort of all of the above, right? So your typical pension fund will have a bunch of their money invested in real estate, maybe 10%. Um, and of that 10% in real estate, about 30% will be in office, right? So office is in everybody's portfolio. It's in your retirement portfolio, whether you know it or not, through your pension fund, uh, it's probably in there. So that's sort of the first loss, and I think the equity piece is sort of going to get really hammered uh, in, 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 in for equity investments in office. The debt piece on the left side of the chart um, turns out a lot of debt for commercial real estate is made by banks, okay, and in particular regional banks, local banks. Now, if you've been following the news in the last few months, you've heard that there's been some banking trouble in among regional banks, and you know. That's even sort of before we've begun to talk about this commercial real estate distress, which hasn't quite started yet. It's beginning right now, right? And so there's potential additional losses that these local regional banks are going to have on their loans that they made on, the, on these local offices. And, and that's potentially an, an important story because, uh, you know, banks are already sort of in a fairly fragile state, especially these regional banks. And if we're not going to add on top of it some losses uh, on their commercial real estate loans, uh, you know, that's potentially going to be uh, problematic. Stan, have you done any modeling? This shows the breakdown, those last two charts we were looking at, uh, the breakdown of the exposure by different classes of investor on the debt and equity side. Have you done any modeling in terms of the aggregate economic impact that these types of drawdowns, I mean, 40 to 45 percent, pretty enormous. First, actually, if you could put that number, 45% decline from peak into perspective, uh, have we seen anything that looks even remotely like that in the last several decades? And second, what are the spillover effects going to be for U.S. equity markets, U.S. debt markets, uh, the banking system here in the United States, and on and on? Yeah, I would sort of say that, so just in dollar terms, that 40 or 45% drop is corresponds to about a $500 billion decline in, in asset value, which is a non-trivial number, right? That's a big number. Um, you know, that's point number one. Point number two, have we seen something like this historically? I think to me, the closest uh, similarity is actually to the to the real estate crisis in the in the mid to late 1980s and early 1990s, and and I point that, I point to this uh, similarity because 
for those of you who, who remember, that was sort of a period where interest rates were rising just like they're rising now, and we had commercial real estate trouble. And it turned out that a lot of banks had a lot of exposure to commercial real estate debt, just like banks uh, do today, as we were discussing. And, and, and sort of this combination of higher rates and commercial real estate distress tipped a lot of banks into bankruptcy. In, in that period, we had more than a thousand banks fail in the United States, savings and loans, the savings and loans crisis. The government ended up having to set up a bad bank to basically collect all of these bad loans. This was called the Resolution Trust Corporation, the RTC. And then the RTC ended up slowly unwinding or selling back this real estate to the private market over the next several years. So this was again sort of a drawn out bank real estate crisis morphing into a banking crisis and sort of uh, transitioning these defaulted real estate assets in, you know, into new ownership over a number of years. And this, this took a long time. This was sort of a, a painful process and, um, and a banking, you know, a full, a full fledged banking crisis, the likes of which we, you know, we sort of have to wait until 2008, the great financial crisis when we had another real estate problem, this time in residential subprime mortgages, you know, which also contaminated the banking crisis, uh, you know, triggered a banking crisis and contaminated the macro economy, right? So to your question of what are sort of the broader macroeconomic repercussions of this, you know, sometimes people will say, well, commercial real estate loans are only a very small, office loans are only a very small fraction of banks' assets. And so the risk of contagion is limited. You know, that's sort of one view. If you look at it very, very narrowly, actually only counting office loans is maybe not the right way to think about this, right? Because for some banks, that exposure to commercial real estate is large. There are a range of mid-sized to large banks, maybe not gigantic banks, but large banks that have more than 100% of their equity in commercial real estate exposure, which means that if those commercial real estate loans lose half of their value, the bank loses half of all of its equity, right? So that bank is now severely undercapitalized. It needs to either be resolved or it needs to raise new equity capital, which is hard. Uh, in the middle of a in the middle of of, of you know a, a large deficit, so I do think there's potential for spillover, in part because some of this is triggered by higher interest rates. Higher interest rates affects the entire loan book of these banks, so it's taking place. Commercial real estate distress is taking place in a macroeconomic scenario where a lot of assets have lost value because of higher interest rates. It's not just the commercial real estate loans. That's sort of the the tip of the iceberg. Right? So I do worry that there is potential for spillover here, that we haven't seen the end of the banking crisis yet. Uh, I don't want to be too gloomy, but I do think that risk is, 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 certainly, is certainly present. Sen, I think a lot of people who are listening and watching this conversation have sat up right now and are taking notice. You've got their attention. You talk about this being a potential train wreck in slow motion. Uh, obviously, the, the speed of this, for all the reasons you've pointed out, and uh, not the speed at which we'd see an equity crash, what are some of the gauges that you're looking at? What are some of the metrics for people who are listening to this conversation who want to dial in and take a look at some of these stress gauges, some of these fear gauges? What do you look at and what should they be looking at? Yeah, great question. So a few things that I look at is, is first, what are mortgage delinquency rates, right? So what's the rate at which these commercial and in particular these office mortgages, uh, you know, start missing payments? And uh, one number we look at is called the special servicing rate. It's essentially the fraction of mortgages that are 60 days late, right? So these are office owners that have decided or are unable to make mortgage payments two months in a row. And so when that happens, that loan file is now technically, that loan is now technically delinquent 
uh, that loan file goes to the special servicer who's supposed to either modify the loan or potentially foreclose on the foreclose on the property and sell it sell it at auction. So that special servicing rate has roughly doubled for office in the last several months from roughly 3% to 6%, right? So 6% of office loans are currently arguably already in distress. 6% is not a huge number, but I but again, we're early in this in, in this phase. So I expect that number to really increase in the next several months, but it'll be interesting to see just how fast that number goes up. The other place I look is in the equity markets, right? So something like 15% of commercial real estate is trading in public equity markets in so-called REITs, real estate investment trusts. And there are some office REITs that are pure play office owners. Some of them are regionally concentrated. So in New York City, for example, you have companies like Bornado, SL Green, Empire Realty State Trust. These are three pure play New York City centric office REITs. You can look at their share prices on a daily basis. Right? And their shares are down somewhere between 70 and 80% from uh, pre-pandemic levels. And, and they're actually down substantially compared to the middle of 2021 uh, even. And so the equity market is telling us that you know, these offices are not worth the same as what they used to be uh, and by a large margin. And we can see this on a daily basis. Now you may say a lot of investors in the stock market are noise traders. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand real estate. That's all good and well, but it's nevertheless an important signal that would be sort of a mistake to ignore altogether, right? So those are some of the gauges that that I look at. There's a lot more, but I think that's a, a good start. Well, let's continue down that path and talk about more of those gauges. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is CMBS, Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities. Uh, talk a little bit about the structure of that market, what it represents to you and what we're seeing there. Yeah, so the CMBS market stands for Commercial Mortgage Backed Security Market. So what often happens is, when you're a landlord, you're an office owner, uh, you need to finance, you, you want to get some debt to finance your building. As we discussed, one source of debt are the banks, but another important source of debt is the CMBS market, essentially the capital market at large. And sort of the beauty of CMBS is that you could tap into that global capital market to finance purchases of offices. So roughly about 10 to 15% of all, of all commercial real estate debt gets raised through the CMBS market. And then you know, against this portfolio, these are typically portfolios of about 100 commercial mortgages, we're going to issue a bunch of securities. These securities will typically be rated by the rating agencies. There will be all the way from AAA bonds to non-rated bonds with high risk, right? So the way uh, mortgage-backed securities work is we're going to pool a bunch of loans and then we're going to trench the risk in these loans in a way to create some very high risk and some very low risk securities out of it. And then this debt is trading in public debt markets. And the beauty is just like the stock market, in the CMBS market, we get a daily picture of how the market perceives the value of this commercial real estate debt uh, and how that evolves over time. And so one thing we could look at is the prices of these CMBS bonds. And a particular useful bond to look at is what's called the triple B minus bond, which is the last bond that's just investment grade. So triple B rating means the bond is an investment grade bond. It has a fairly low to modest default risk. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be an investment grade bond. And we can look at how the market perceives sort of the risk of those bonds to be by looking at the price of these bonds. And what we've been noticing is that these triple B bond prices have been losing substantial value, whereas they were trading at around 94 cents on the dollar just a year and a half ago. They're now trading closer to 65 cents on the dollar. Right. So that's about a 27 percent reduction in value, as it turns out. So that's, a, again, that's sort of a signal that the bond markets is, send, is sending us that these well-diversified pools of commercial real estate loans are now worth 
27% less than they were just 18 months ago. And mind you that that's not just office. These pools typically are well diversified across property types. They have some shopping mall loans in it. They have some apartment uh, buildings in it. They have some industrial warehouse loans in it. So, right. so obviously the office portion of that is driving a lot of these price declines. And 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 and, and so the you know the market is telling us that the distress in the office is much larger because it's a it's an average of all of those asset classes. Right. When this is such an important point, when people talk about CRE as the acronym commercial real estate, uh, they're talking about all of these asset classes or sub asset classes, uh, one of which the largest, I believe, uh, is multifamily housing. So essentially, you have these uh, CMBS uh, securities that represent a, a spread across that asset class. And it, it almost sounds like what you're suggesting, San, is that you have the the buoying of those assets by things like residential uh, multifamily housing. Uh, against the office space, and it sort of suggests that maybe the, that subclass is actually doing worse than the price action in those mortgage-backed securities would suggest. Right. I mean, one way of trying to get at that, which we do a little bit in our research, is to compare uh, different vintages of these CMBS deals. It so happens that deals that were issued a few years ago have less office in them than the more recent deals. And so when you're looking at the relative price declines of the mm. more recent deals with more office in it, and you compare it to the price declines of CMBS of earlier deals with less office in it, from that mm. difference, you can ex you can distill sort of how the market views the office distress. And sure enough, these later deals that have more office in it have gone down more in price than the earlier, the earlier deals that have less office in it, right? And so from that, again, the market is sending, the bond markets are sending us uh, sort of a distress signal about uh, distress in office specifically. I'm sure some of our viewers and listeners have gotten chills down their spine because it sounds reminiscent of a conversation we were having around the 2007-2008 period about our MBS, residential mortgage-backed securities. I remember doing research when I was a reporter at CNBC at the time about precisely those uh, questions about different loan vintages and trying to assess and figure out uh, the underwriting standards and had they declined. Uh, one of the things that strikes me from the 2007-2008 crisis period it was really just how much we didn't know in terms of things like uh, the way that these uh, assets had been securitized. Uh, some folks out there will remember acronyms like CDOs and CDO squared. Uh, there was an absence of diversification in some of those uh, assets that were thought to be there. And then also, as always, when we have uh, talks of crisis, the word leverage rears its ugly head. Talk a little bit about the structure of some of these securities, what you see uh, in terms of diversification risk, leverage risk, and other risks that you see in these securitized assets. So this is an important discussion. So what we sort of coming out of the financial crisis, right, there was a sort of a strong regulatory response, a lot of it in the Dodd-Frank Act. And a lot of this was trying to shore up confidence in these in these mortgage-backed securities, whether they be residential or commercial mortgage-backed securities. Coming out of the financial crisis, having been burned by the financial crisis, underwriters became a lot more conservative in their uh, in, in in their credit standards. So credit standards were very tight, you know, call it in 2010, 11, 12, and then gradually credit standards started to loosen back up. People have short memories, and so. Again, sort of leading up between 2012 and 2020, we saw a gradual erosion of credit standards, albeit not nearly to the same extent as what happened in the 2004 to 2007 period. So I think credit standards aren't really the problem. They're sort of missing the point a little bit. What's more interesting and more to your point of diversification 
is another development in the CMBS market, which is the, 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 the increase in prominence of so-called SASB deals. So SASB is an acronym, it stands for single asset, single borrower. So normally a CMBS pool would be a pool of call it 80 to 100 commercial mortgages. It's a well-diversified pool across locations, across asset types. A SASB deal is very different. It has typically a single mortgage in the pool. So there is no diversification, you know. I'm, I'm buying a large $1 billion office asset. I'm getting an 800 or $700 million mortgage. I'm putting that one $700 million mortgage in uh, a SASB deal, and then I'm issuing securities against that. There's only one mortgage in that deal. If that one mortgage goes, goes in default, my entire deal goes into default. So it turns out these SASB deals actually became prominent and they became larger than these pools of mortgages that we're used to thinking about in CMBS. And, and some of them are office assets. So these are sort of a pure play office loan investment. And naturally, now that office is under stress, these SASB deals are under stress because they don't, they don't benefit from this diversification of having some multifamily and some industrial loans in the pool as well, because there's only one loan. It's a SASB deal. SASB became maybe 30, 40, even in some years, 50% of all the CMBS issuance was, was these SASB deals. So that's an interesting development and sort of not one that gives us uh, sort of a lot of comfort. Stan, to the best of your knowledge, is there anyone out there taking opportunities here to short some of this stuff? I imagine uh, that our subscribers, viewers, listeners who work for hedge funds are thinking about that. Uh, again, I think most people have probably seen the big short. Uh, we know that when there are these mispricing opportunities that folks do step in and take the other side of those trades. Have you seen any of that in your research or any evidence that that type of trade is on right now? Absolutely. So we looked at this a while ago, and there's two ways of looking at it. One way is to look at the equity market, again, at the REIT market, and to look at the short positions against some of these REIT shares. And they were very, very large and rising rapidly. Um, it's generally expensive to short uh, REITs because you have to pay the dividend, and REITs pay a lot of dividend. So the cost of holding these short positions is larger than for other stocks. But clearly, there was a large rise in, 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 in the shorts outstanding against REITs. The other way you can take advantage of a decline in office values is to uh, go through the CMBS market, specifically to go through the CMBX market. This, this is essentially uh, a pool of the largest CMBS. And so if you have, let's say, the 25 largest CMBS deals of a particular vintage, those get repooled into, uh, let's say, the triple B tranches from all 25 of these deals get repooled. And now you can buy a, essentially a weighted average uh, of these 25 triple B pieces. So you and if, if that CMBX deal has a lot of offers in it, you could potentially go short uh, in the CMBX market uh, as well. And that too has been happening uh, in the last few in the last few months and, and, and even years. I think now that trade is sort of starting to pay dividends as you see the prices of these of these triple B tranches uh, slide. So you mentioned that you look at a whole series of different data points in your research, what else do you look at that we haven't yet talked about? Right, so we, you know, we spoke about uh, debt investors, the CMBS market, uh, we spoke about uh, equity markets, the REIT market. You know, we, we spent quite a bit of time looking at bank data, which we touched upon, but there's a lot of um, individual bank level data out, out there. And one thing we've done is we've looked at, you know, how much exposure do banks have to commercial real estate lending? And how does that exposure vary by the size of these banks? And if you want to think about, so the overall commercial real estate uh, debt market is about five and a half trillion. 
about 60% sits on banks' balance sheets. And then if you look across bank sizes, it turns out that the very largest banks are the ones above 250 billion, the, you know, the, whatever, the 10 largest banks in the United States. They have about a third of all the commercial real estate exposure. But as a share of their assets, it's only about 5%. So they're actually not terribly exposed to commercial real estate, which is a good thing because these are all systemically risky banks. They're all too big to fail. The next tier of banks, um, any sort of between 250 billion and let's call it maybe 10 billion, they tend to have a lot more commercial real estate exposure. These are all the regional banks that have been in the news in the last few months. And there's, there is a range, but they have, you know, anywhere between 15 all the way to 40, 30, 40% commercial real estate exposure. And so there's some banks in there, as I mentioned earlier, that have essentially more commercial real estate exposure than their entire tier one capital. So again, a severe shock on, or a severe uh, loss scenario on those commercial real estate loans could actually impair uh, these, these banks' equity substantially. Um, and then you have a lot of small, a lot of small banks out there. And typically there's sort of a matching process. The, the small banks will make loans to small commercial real estate investors in their locality, right? And so as some, and they too have, as a share of their small, but as a share of their assets, commercial real estate lending is, is, is big. It's bread and butter, uh, local banking. And so as we see sort of distress in those places uh, pop up as well, that also impairs these smaller banks. And that's not just important for commercial real estate, it's important for the broader economy. This goes back to your earlier question about the broader economic ramifications. These same small banks are making loans to small businesses in their communities. And so now that they have to take losses on their commercial real estate portfolio, they'll be less likely to make that small business loan or they'll charge a lot more for that small business loan. So credit standards tighten best case scenario. And so that's bad, obviously, for, for all these, for these small businesses in those communities, right? And that's sort of the macroeconomic spillovers from, from some of that commercial real estate distress as well. What's the worst case for the banking sector? And what's the probability in your view that we get there? I, you know, I have not done a lot of research on this. Some of my colleagues at Columbia Business School have, have sort of calculated that, uh, um, you know, banks, you know, are severely sort of undercapitalized if you mark to market their assets. Um, so I do think a lot of this has to do with, with, with policy responses and to the extent to which investors feel like their money is safe in banks. I mean, I think there is sort of a possibility of a banking panic, uh, whether that be justified or not. At the end of the day, if depositors decide to run on the banks, it's very difficult to stop, especially in this day and age where we can all message each other on Slack and five minutes later, there's a big banking run. And even if it's unjustified or based on a rumor, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I do think sort of the worst case scenario is a pretty bad event. Uh, I don't think it's particularly likely. You know, I do think the most likely scenario is one of slow burn, the, the, the train wreck in slow motion where banks will have to provision for years, for several years, they will have to take losses for several years but most of the banks survive this. There'll be some consolidation among some of the weaker banks. Some of them might get might need to get resolved by the FDIC, but hopefully not large banks. So I do think we sort of muddled through, this is sort of my, this is my best case scenario. We muddled through this over the next several years. It's gonna be, it's not gonna be supportive for the economy. We will have a, a modest credit crunch. That's sort of as, as a best case scenario. Um, and, and, but, you know, eventually the economy will turn. Maybe we'll have a recession. We'll get through that as well. Um, you know, but I think there's sort of, that's a best case scenario in my mind. Hmm. 
It's so interesting. I just had a conversation this morning with Caitlin Long, uh, who's someone who's very prominent in the digital asset crypto Bitcoin space. And we were talking about what it means to have essentially capital flight from banks at the speed of cell phone transactions. The minute that you hear uh, that a bank that you have a deposit in that's over the FDIC insurance limit uh, might be experiencing trouble, everyone just jumps on their phone and they start moving funds. I mean, the point that she was making is that we're in a, a new era in terms of banking uh, and what it means to experience risk, something that we frankly did not even see in place. And I'm not trying to be gloom and doom here about this, but it is kind of a new regime uh, with the speed of digital uh, capital flight than we saw even during the 2007-2008 era. For sure. And I think our our banking regulation has to adjust to this. Our banking supervision needs to adjust to this. Yeah. And maybe we need to sort of start, you know, putting uh, time limits on how much, you know, how much money one individual can withdraw in a certain amount of time, right? Just to sort of deal with this and slow down slow down this, these, these crashes, uh, you know, give people, just like we have circuit breakers in the equity market, Maybe we need something like that for depositors as well. Give everybody some pause, not to panic. Think about it. Let policymakers do their job. Uh, but I do think supervision will will have to think about this carefully. Boy, capital controls from deposit uh, from demand deposit withdrawals is something that probably is freaking people out just hearing those phrases. But like you said, we are living in a new digital age. If I can message the entire Silicon Valley venture capital community, and five minutes later, we are all collectively pulling our money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Then within yeah. five minutes, this bank is bankrupt. And if we don't have, if we don't adopt, and there's no amount of supervision that can stop that, you know, until we are aware of this and potentially put some guardrails in place that sort right. of prevent this outcome in the first place. Yeah, and, and you know, when banks are carrying seven to 10% uh, of their capital, uh, in a way that can be withdrawn and you do have, and by the way, for people listening, they probably know this already. That's not a hypothetical. The case that you sketched out, maybe not five minutes, but over a period of days, it certainly did happen uh, in the most recent, uh, the three bank failures we saw this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these banks have commercial real estate loans, which are very illiquid, you know, good luck trying to sell those in a short amount of time, um, especially in this environment. Uh, this is a bit the case of Signature Bank. You know, they had a large exposure to commercial real estate, a lot of it in New York City. Um, so it's very difficult to raise capital for banks uh, with those type of portfolios in a short amount of time. Yeah. Let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about the macro backdrop. Again, I'm not trying to be gloomy, but I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the context in which we find ourselves. Obviously, a period of sharply rising rates, uh, federal funds rate now at 500 to 525 basis points. Uh, part of this uh, broader hiking cycle, we've got about uh, $8 trillion on the balance sheet at the Fed, uh, less eliminations from consolidation. We have a period, uh, what we're looking at here, where the 210 spread is upside down about 100 points. I mean, this is a, a 100 basis points. This is an unusual moment in history to be uncovering some of these risks that are, you know, in many ways, a consequence of COVID and some other broader factors. It almost feels as though it's a potential perfect storm type situation here. Yeah, so a lot of things to unpack there. So one one point that I often make to my students is, you know, we've been in this environment where interest rates have been gradually going down for the better part of 40 years. And we all got used to rates falling and then falling some more to levels right. that were really, you know, historically low. We never seen low in hundreds of years. You could go back to the 1700s and we did not see sort of such low, <laughs> such low interest rates, right? And so we got re really used to that. And all the assets, including real estate, but many other assets were pricing sort of of an assumption that long-term interest rates were going to stay low for forever after. 
Right. And we all of a sudden find ourselves in a very different environment where long rates, not just short rates, but also long rates have gone up meaningfully 250 basis points. The 10 year has gone up 250 basis points, which is a massive shock. We have to go back to the 80s to find a 250 basis point increase in long term treasuries. Treasuries have also become even long term treasuries have also become very volatile. It's very unusual to get these 20, 30, 40 basis point spreads in, in, in a matter of days in the 10 year. So that's sort of another part of the capital markets that that we are not used to. Um, and so what you could do, what you could do is you could do this very simple calculation, right? Take a take a building, which is a long-term asset. It's generate cash flows. Let's imagine these cash flows are unaffected by the interest rate environment. And now reprice this given set of cash flows with a treasury curve that has moved up 250 basis points, right? So let's say we went from 200 basis points, 10-year treasury to 450 basis points, 10-year treasury, which by the way is where the forward curve is trading 10 years from now. At the 10-year, 10 years from now, the forward curve tells us it's gonna be 450 basis points. So just reprice that same stream of real estate cash flows at these higher treasury rates, that reduces the value of your asset by more than 35%. And there are no cash flow problems in this asset, right? just from the rise in interest rates. And the reason is because mm. real estate is a long-lived asset and a large increase in interest rates is particularly painful when it comes, when it start, when that change in interest rates comes from a very low level of interest rates, right? So we had very low levels of interest rates right. in real estate. We would say we had very low cap rates and now the cap rate has gone up a lot. You know, that's convexity. People in fixed income call this convexity. Right. right, it's not linear. It's non-linear. If you started from very low rates and right. rates go up, the decline in value is massive, and and, and that's, that's because before, the percent the percent yeah. change uh, is very high when you're moving 25 basis points from 25 basis. Yeah, points. exactly. It's sort wow. of you know it's sort of math, <laughs> but at the, but at the same time, it's real. That's like a 35 percent revaluation of an otherwise perfectly healthy cash flowing asset. Now add on top of that all the cash flow trouble that we've been talking about from remote work, especially in the office market, maybe also e-commerce in the mall market. So add, add that on top, and now you're down to 50% decline in value. In office, we can also talk about climate regulation that's gonna shave off a few more percent of value. You know, I've done these calculations. You can have a perfectly healthy class B office building in New York City be worth $100 million in 2019. Now you let it. Ex now you let this asset experience this triple, I call it the triple headwind, the triple headwind of higher rates, uh, cash flow trouble from remote work, and uh, climate regulation, and this asset is worth $38 million, okay? It lost 62% in value. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think this is hypothetical. Um, this is the revaluation of that asset. You know, this $100 million plus B office building is now worth $38 million, which means somebody needs to take a massive loss. The equity is wiped out, the debt takes a big loss. Yeah, this is something that you've uh, talked about in your work, which is this idea of the heterogeneity in the space. You've got obviously different classes of buildings, different classes of properties. Talk a little bit about how that might be a problem. Yes, so there is a flight to quality going on in office, which means that the very best, very youngest buildings are doing reasonably well. And I'm talking office buildings. So think about a brand new building, one vendor builds, a uh, brand new office building, uh, it gets rents, that are substantially above uh, even regular class A uh, properties. They, you know, think of Hudson Yards, like brand new office buildings, anything built after 2010 in our data we show has gotten about 30% increases in net effective rents. So 30% increase in rents in this environment is obviously a great thing, right? right? But that's a small fraction of properties. Um, 
maybe it's a larger fraction of the cash flows and a larger fraction of the values because these buildings are very valuable, but nevertheless, it's sort of the exception to the rule. So our, we look, we, we sort of define A plus in our research to be all the office buildings that are in the top 10% of rents in a given submarket in a given year, right? If you can charge a rent that's in the 90th percentile, I'm gonna call you A plus. And so when we right. separately do our valuation for the A plus universe versus everything else, Instead of finding an overall 45% decline, we're finding an only 20% decline for the A plus space, and we're finding a 60 to 70% decline for everything else, right? So a huge bifurcation in the market happening. It's not that, so flight to quality suggests that the A plus is gaining in value. It's not, okay? This is an aggregate shock. Remote work is an aggregate shock. It doesn't help even the class A plus. And interest rates is an aggregate shock. It lowers values of A plus also. But mm the value decline is a lot less than it is for the class B, C, A minus space. And there it's absolutely catastrophic. Take an old building, class B, it could easily lose 60% in value. Um, and so why is that? Well, it's older product. It's not been maintained as well, potentially. There's potentially large capital expenditure risk. Um, you know, it's hard to charge, you know, high enough rents. And then a lot of, a lot of it is, Smaller companies, small, take off your class, you know, your second tier law firm, your second tier accounting firm, they are the ones occupying these second tier office buildings on Third Avenue. These are not deep pocketed tenants. These are not tenants that can say, you know what, I would really love uh, a childcare center or a pet, a pet care center downstairs in my building and have some balconies in my office building. They cannot afford that. And so, you know, they are there, you know, a lot of them went remote and they said, you know what, this remote, work thing works great for our company. We were productive. We were able to build more hours than before remote work. Why would we go back and sort of pay top dollar rents? They cannot afford it and they don't want it. And so a lot of small tenants, you know, are in these small properties and these small properties are getting devastated right now uh, because, you know, they cannot, they cannot pay these 130, 140, 150 net of per square foot that some of these trophy buildings are charging. So we see a bifurcation of the market. I wouldn't want to be in any of the office, including the A+, but the A+, is clearly less severely affected than uh, the Class B, Class C. You know, one of the uh, other sort of attributes of this uh, kind of heterogeneity distributional effect uh, question that comes out of the COVID pandemic and the work from home period that came up after it is this idea of tax in revenue inequality and what happens when the wrong people uh, leave. You could have several people. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what happens when you see uh, folks maybe who worked at hedge funds here in New York City who say, hey, you know what? Why can't I do this uh, from Palm Beach? And there are a lot of those people and it doesn't take many. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true, right? So this is sort of back to our, our, our urban doom loop story. Um, you know, tax revenues are very concentrated. That's not just true for property tax, it's definitely true for income tax, right? So here's a useful statistic. New York City gets about half of its income tax revenue from the top 0.4% of taxpayers. So that's literally a few thousand um, rich individuals. Um, and if a substantial fraction of those leave, that creates a, a real hole in the budget of, of, of even a large city like New York City. And like you said, this is happening. We see this in the data. There are a whole bunch of millionaires that have left New York City in the last year, especially in 2022. We see this very strongly in the data. Uh, and it's potentially a risk factor going forward because if property taxes go up, if other taxes go up in New York, you know, by virtue of the doom loop that we talked about, this process will only accelerate. And it's these high 
income uh, people that are very mobile. They have a higher out-migration sensitivity to the tax rate than, than average people. Average people may say, you know what? My taxes go up a little bit. I'm stuck. Uh, too bad for me. I'm just going to have to pay up. But that group of people, you know, can potentially keep their job in New York, buy a house in Palm in Palm Beach, work right. from there, you know, be a tax resident in Florida, still spend a substantial fraction of the year in New York, keep the same job, right? So we're living in a new world where because of remote work, we are able to separate our location of residence from our location of work in ways right. that we were not able to do before and in ways that sort of promote this type of let's call it tax arbitrage, right? And so people are taking advantage of it and it's to the detriment of higher tax locations like New York, California, and, and it's to the benefit of low tax locations like Florida, uh, Texas, and so forth. Yeah, and these obviously have broader social, cultural, political, and economic ramifications uh, that you can obviously begin to piece together, uh, particularly because people can spend uh, a substantial majority, minority of their time uh, here in New York City and maybe avoid the worst of the heat and hurricane season down in Miami. Uh, we've got some really great questions coming in for our audience. Our first one is from Charles Collier. Uh, Charles has clearly been uh, following the thread through. He asks, uh, Stan, who will be the ultimate holder? Borrower stops paying, building goes to the bank, bank lets it go, it goes to the municipality. What happens to the city? Yeah, so I think neither the bank nor the city wants to own this office building and eventually will need to sell it. I think sort of the Resolution Trust Corporation experience from the 1980s is potentially a guide here. Back in those days, we actually, that, you know, the, that experience actually saw the birth of the CMBS market. It saw the birth of modern real estate private equity. Um, and so something similar could happen. We have to set up pools. We have to set up pools of these defaulted properties and those pools then get auctioned off potentially distressed real estate, private equity money gets raised to buy these pools. Uh, maybe we securitize, we securitize some of these loans after modification. So, you know, models like that uh, are, are possible here as well. But it's clear that the banks have sort of no comparative advantage holding these, holding and running these, these properties. That's the last thing they want to be doing. Yeah. Here's a question from Kim Hembry. Do you have an opinion on industrial focused REITs? So industrial has been the star of the show over the last two or three years. Um, you know, it sort of benefited secularly from the rise in e-commerce. There's also some more local factors like the widening of the Panama Canal has, that has been very supportive for industrial on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, I expect e-commerce got, got sort of, uh, you know, accelerated during COVID quite dramatically. Uh, that's sort of slowing down a little bit now. If you look at the share of sales that are e-commerce, it's actually growing, but at a much slower rate than in past years. Um, I also think that, you know, a lot of real estate became very expensive, um, you know, on the back of very strong rental growth. I don't think these rental growth rates are necessarily sustainable for the next few years. Um, so we're certainly going to see a slowdown because industrial real estate was so profitable, a lot of supply has come in, right? So development has roughly doubled. Industrial new industrial development has roughly doubled. So that's also not good for fundamentals. Uh, and then on top of it, interest rates affect all property types, and they actually disproportionately affect industrial because industrial tends to have very long-term leases. So I like to think of industrial as a a, lo a long-duration bond. And as we just like higher interest rates, you know, reduce the value of long-duration treasuries by more. Uh, higher interest rates also reduce the value of industrial real estate by more. So I'm not very bullish on industrial, uh, sort of on 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 the back of all of those uh, observations. 
Here's a question that comes to us from Alfredo Rumia. When is peak commercial refinancing due and would that represent the bottom? Sophisticated question. So people have looked at this. They talk about the wall of maturities. Um, you can look at it in terms of overall commercial real estate debt that comes due. Actually, the peak is 2023 and, uh, and, 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 and it's very similarly in 2024. So there is about a trillion and a half of commercial debt that needs to be refinanced between those in, until by the end of 2024. And it goes down after that. So, so the peak is coming soon. I do think that those refinancing events will be catalysts. They will be places where we get to rediscover. We, 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 do, we look at the price formation, basically. We see what happens to those deals. I do expect, in many cases, the refinancing will fail and, and these assets will go through distress. Uh, but we'll get a lot of data from this. If you look at CMBS, the peak is in 2023. So a lot of the debt that's coming due this year is in CMBS. For banks, it comes a little bit later in 2026, 2027 is the peak of bank debt that needs to be refinanced. But it's a very good question because I think these refinancing events are going to be the catalyst. Um, and we're going to see a lot of that debt. You know, the typical mortgage in, in, in commercial real estate is a 10-year mortgage. So a lot of that debt was issued in 2013, 2014. Typical interest rates in 2013 and 2014 on commercial loans were 4.5%. Today, uh, CMBS loans are 7%. So if you need to refinance, and banks are not open for business, so if you need to refinance that 4.5% mortgage into a 7% mortgage, it, 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 you know, it means you're going to have to contribute a substantial amount of equity. Uh, or you throw in the towel and, and sort of give up on the property. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And I do agree with you that we're going we're gonna to learn a lot in the next year, year and a half from those refinancing events. Boy, that's a great question. Uh, Stan, that's one hell of a number, one and a half trillion. Uh, back of the envelope, that's about one-sixth of U.S. GDP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big number. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so we've been talking, obviously, a lot about the potential risks here, but I don't want it to be all gloom and doom. Let's talk about some of the opportunities uh, that come as a consequence of you know, the future of work, remote work, digitization. Uh, what do you do? Is there a silver lining in this? What are some of the places where people might hide or even find opportunities? Yeah, so the first thing I want to say is just sort of as, a, as an individual, not necessarily as, as a researcher, is I do think remote work has created a lot of benefits for a lot of people. Let's not forget that, right? There are especially sort of mid-career folks have small children at home. Now they can have dinner together. You know, there's a lot of benefit that has come from this. Let's not ignore this. Uh, that's sort of the first observation. You know, the second observation is cities have always gone through transition. I like to think of this period as sort of similar to the period where we had deindustrialization in cities. You know, if you walked in Manhattan 100 years ago, you would have seen a lot of pollution, steamboats, uh, manufacturing, warehouses. None of that stuff exists anymore, right? We've cleaned up the waterfront. It's now People go running there now. There's no more, no more ships docking with grain and with, with coal and whatever else. So we have gone through like a 20, 30 year deindustrialization in New York City. Ironically, it was the office buildings and the service sector that was our bailout back then. Today, right. the office, the office properties are the problem, not the solution. But similarly, we need to reimagine the future of our large cities. And in a nutshell, we have a misallocation of our real estate stock. We have too much office and we have too little mostly housing right maybe also right. too little of some other things like childcare space and maybe educational space and and so we need to repurpose some of our real estate stocks simply put uh, and maybe more broadly i like to think of the city of the future as being 
less of a production, a place of production and more a place of consumption, right? So our mm -hmm. cities, places like New York have tons of amenities. They have lots of things going for them. Young people want to be here, right? If you have uh, kids that are in college and you ask your kids and their friends, where do they want to live for their first job? They're going to answer, I want to be in New York City, right? And so why is that? Well, because we have all these amenities. These are amazing places where you can meet other people. We have thick labor markets. We have thick marriage markets. You know, they're, they're amazing, amazing places to be. And we need to embrace that. And we need to turn some of that real estate around, repurpose it, uh, create more housing, create more healthcare space, childcare space, life science space, uh, mixed use. There is a lot of ideas out there. You know, I'm a big believer in... In, in selected instances, I should be careful. In selected instances, I'm a believer that office can be converted to, to apartments. And we could talk about that if you like. Yeah, what is the percentage? There are all kinds of zoning requirements, all types of uh, you know physical usage issues around it. What, what's the percentage? Because it's not just a let's flip it all type of situation. Absolutely, right? So I wrote a new paper on this that just uh, you know came out a week or so ago where we study this question. And there's sort of, I like to think of it as there's sort of three um, three challenges. The first challenge is, is the building physically suitable for a conversion? The second challenge is regulatory, like what you talk about, zoning. And the third challenge is an economic one. Even if I am allowed to convert the building, and even if the building is physically suitable, does it make economic sense to convert? So the answer to the first question, the short answer to the first question is about 10% of the office stock in the United States is, in, in our view, you know, physically suitable for a conversion. In New York City, that number is closer to 30%. So there we look at things like floor space, floor, um, you know, floor plate, the size of the floor plate cannot be too deep. The distance from the core of the building to the window cannot be too large. Otherwise, the layouts are clumsy for apartment living. Uh, you can look at uh, like high density areas. Buildings are built before 1990. There's a whole series of criteria we go through to sort of filter the stock of offices all the way down to what we think are potentially convertible buildings. And in New York City, we get to 30% nationwide, more like 10%. Then you have the zoning piece, which is complex. But here I feel like the policymakers have woken up. And for example, in New York City, there's a hundred different pieces of the zoning code and the building code that are currently being revised in order to make these conversions more feasible, right? So th simple things like, you know, I have a 15 floor building, I wanna convert it to an apartment, but oops, I can only build 12 floors by the zoning code because it, 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 this lot has a floor area ratio of 12, but the existing office has 15 floors. Please let me convert this 15 floor office building into a 15 floor apartment building, right? So simple fixes like this, stroke of a pen, it's not hard to change. It makes a lot of sense to change, right? And so the policymakers are sort of thinking actively in that direction. The third piece is sort of the most subtle piece, which is, does the economics work? Even if I can do it, and even if it's sort of from a layout, from an architectural perspective makes sense, can I actually make money doing this conversion? And the answer is sort of a cautious yes. It's a yes, but. And the but is, first of all, I need to be able to buy the old office property at a really low value. My basis has to be low enough. Essentially, somebody needs to recognize the inherent value destruction that has already taken place in this office. And remember my example of my $100 million building that's now worth 38 million? I have to be able to buy this building, this old office building, this class B brown office building. I have to be able to buy it for 38 million. If I can buy it for 38 million, now I'm gonna have to spend, you know, maybe 100 million actually renovating it. It's gonna be very expensive, you know, give or take $400,000 per apartment. I'm going to make it green. So that's going to cost some extra money. 
and now I'm going to turn it into market rate rentals. And you know, I've worked through the math, and you can earn just about enough return to justify the risk of this investment. And I call it an IRR of 16, 17% um, and a positive MPV. So it's feasible if, but sort of not a whole lot can go wrong. And, and <laughs> the, key, the key parameters are what's my cost of debt? Uh, what's, my, what's, my, uh, what's my basis? You know, how much do I have to pay for the building? Uh, how much does it actually cost to convert this office building, and that's going to depend a lot on the layout. Do I need to drill a core in the middle of this big building, right? So this is going to work a lot better for smaller floor plates for older buildings, which, by the way, are cheaper because they're class B, they're beaten down. So that should work well for conversion. Uh, also, because they're typically a little bit more charming than these 1960s to 1980s glass and steel office buildings. So the economics can work as a market rate rental. Right, but now the politicians want affordable housing. They don't want market rate luxury housing, or at least not exclusively. So if we put an affordability mandate on this conversion project, now very quickly the economics uh, get ruined, and now right. very quickly we get into negative negative MPV territory. So it's no longer uh, feasible to convert, uh, economically feasible to convert, and right. unless we have additional subsidy. Right, and so sort of I go through how much subsidy would we need to throw at this problem to have, let's say, twenty percent of the units be affordable. Yeah, and these are collective decisions. These are public policy choices, political choices, culture and social, cultural and social choices. It almost makes me wonder if we, how far away we are uh, from asking questions about outright demolition of some of these buildings. And maybe uh, I know it's controversial, but 1970s style urban renewal type projects in cities. I mean, some buildings for sure have the long, have sort of the wrong physical layout to be to be convertible uh, in a practical way. And I think for some of these properties, demolition will be the right answer. If you could replace a large glass and steel 1960s in a large floor plate office building with uh, a large multifamily property where the apartment units have the right layout for the modern consumer, that could be that could be a very valuable project. By the way, not only for the developer, but also for the city, right? Because you're going to re be replacing a declining tax revenue stream with a lot much larger and rising tax revenue stream, right? So from even from a fiscal public policy perspective, this could be the right decision. The one thing I don't like about these demolitions is, is sort of the climate angle, because renovations are much more climate friendly than demolition, right? Demolition, you know, yes, we could be demolishing a brown office building and building a beautiful green new apartment building in its place, but the actual construction creates a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emission, uh, the cement, the concrete, the steel, and so forth, right? So that's the that's where conversion is a more climate friendly alternative but again conversion doesn't always work so we need to be open-minded uh, and we need to think about sort of the economics uh, as well as the climate piece Sam, this has been a, an extraordinary conversation i think at times a sobering one uh, but incredible amount of information you are going to be an incredibly important voice in this conversation in the future going forward i'm sure we're going to be seeing and hearing a great deal more from you as we come to the conclusion of this conversation final thoughts key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with? Yeah, I think we're facing an important challenge to, to not just, uh, you know, the urban environment uh, in the aftermath of remote work. I think remote work is a fundamental change, a secular change in society. For the first time in history, we've been able to divorce our place of work from our place of, of, uh, of residence. And that's a very powerful idea. And it's going to take decades for us to really fully come to grip, to grip with this change. And this change is going to have winners and losers. Uh, there'll be a lot of value destruction, but there'll be also potentially be a lot of value creation as we sort of reimagine what the city of the future looks like. Stan, when you're the leadoff guest on 60 Minutes, I hope you'll come back and still remember us. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Ash. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Stan, thanks for joining us. Really incredible conversation. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.